When I first met Ginny, um, I knew she was a good-looking, well, girl at that point. Um, she was a sophomore in high school, I believe, uh, and we were at a party at a friend's house, and uh, that is where I met her. When I spent time talking with her, I knew that she was easy to talk to, to, talk to and somebody that I enjoyed talking with. Uh, that uh, I, I just really, I can start a conversation, but you better participate to carry it on. Otherwise, we're going to come to a screeching halt in a hurry. I mean, that's just the, you know, that's just the way it is. Um, you know, but when I got to know her a little bit, I knew that I wanted to spend more time with her. And after spending more time with her, I knew that I wanted uh, an even deeper relationship and commitment. So we got married. That was the next logical step in our relationship was, uh, well, it seemed to me anyway. And apparently it seemed to her as well, uh, because she did say yes. And now, after we got married, I still enjoyed being with her, but my pursuit of getting to know her better seemed to slowly transition into that automatic pilot mode. I think all of you know what I'm talking about. It just kind of gets into that automatic pilot thing where we, you know, we're, we're together, and is this just isn't this just supposed to work and, and you know unfold in a in a great way? Now, it's not that my feelings for her were any less. Uh, they weren't. I think I just slipped into the mode of knowing that she was there and that she would be there. And because she was there and I knew she would be there, that was enough. You know, and that was enough for me. This seems kind of loud to me. Does it seem loud to you guys or is it just me? No. Okay. Well, then we're fine. I'll be all right. Maybe these speakers are on. I have no idea. That's why I'm up here and they're back there. But anyway. Uh, you know, like I said, my feelings for her were not any less. I just kind of slipped into that mode of knowing she was there, and that was good. You know, that was a good thing, you know, to know that she was there, to know that she, you know, that she would be there with me. Now, after we had been married for six years and had our two daughters, um, you know, Peter wasn't on the scene yet, I uh, quit my job, and I left my job, and I went to Moody Bible Institute. Now, after my first semester in school... Um, which was a whole new shock to me because I had I had never intended on going to any type of college at all, um, and I, I had a job. I liked my job, and 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 that was great. I really kind of blew off my last uh, year or two of high school. I mean, I did go mostly, and um, you know, but I, I didn't really pay attention because I didn't have to. Uh, the classes I had, I didn't have to pay attention to, and so I really didn't. So getting into school was a whole new shock to my system. Uh, but after that first semester there, a friend asked me what was the most important thing I had learned at school. Well, I started saying I, I, I had some classes that I really enjoyed. I had the Gospel of John, I had personal evangelism. We had I had the first half of Old Testament survey, and I really I enjoyed these things. I mean, they were pretty. They were they were great. Uh, so he's asking me, you know, what was it, you know, what was that most important thing I learned? He said, what's the one most important thing? I, I could only give him one he wanted. And it really didn't take me too long to reply that the most important thing that I learned, the thing that, the one thing that stood out to me through the, you know, as I got to that end of that semester there and he made me stop and think about it, there was no question in my mind that the thing that I learned that first semester there 
was that I learned that Ginny is the perfect wife for me. There was no question in my mind about that. You know, that's, that, that is who she is. She is the wife that I need. Uh, you know, as we got ready for me to start uh, school, you know, Ginny uh, got, uh, she, she got a job watching kids in our home so that she could earn money and still be home with our girls. I remember one of the families that we were watching for, uh, the Hennessys, they came to interview her and... Uh, Pat and Sally Hennessy were their names, and they told us later, you know, Jenny told them that I would be going, you know, to, to school and everything. And when they left, they, they told us later, after they left that first meeting interview with Jenny about watching their, you know, their son, there was just a son at that point, grew to be three kids and took them all in. But at any rate, uh, Pat, the husband, was pretty excited thought this was great. Sally, the wife, was kind of bummed and distraught. And he said, what's the matter? And she said, he's a Mooney. Pat said, a Mooney? What are you talking about, he's a Mooney? Well, she said, he's going to that Mooney. Moody, she said. He said, Moody, Moody Bible Institute. <laughs> it was a, it was, but um, it, it was, she, that's what she, you know, that's what she did. Uh, she took kids in, you know, so that I wouldn't have to work so much. Uh, in fact, I didn't have a job when we first started, when I first started at Moody. Um, the job I had when I was planning on going to school, they told me, they said uh, that I could continue working for them part-time and they would pay me the same hourly rate that they did for full-time. I made, I made good money full-time. And it was, I mean, unheard of money for part-time work. Uh, but then as, as things got closer to time for me to, to leave and go to school, business had slowed down a little bit. And they told me, they said, um, you know, Pat, if you, if you stay, you'll always have a job. But if you leave, you know, business has kind of slowed down and we won't be able to uh, keep you on, anymore, you know, part time. And I understood. But at that point, it was pretty clear to me where God wanted me to go, what he wanted me to do. So I left that job. I didn't have a job for three weeks. And like I said, it was a good thing because I didn't know how to study. <laughs> I mean, it was like, oh, oh, you people are serious about this. If you've ever been to college, you know what syllabus shock is. And syllabus shock is, you know, at the beginning of the semester, they give you a syllabus for the entire semester and what's going to be done in there. And then you go to the next class, and they give you a syllabus for the entire semester, what's going to be done in there. And the next class, and, and you do that. And so you get all of these and, and this thing. And, and I got this stack of books, and, that's, and I'm supposed to read all these things, and I'm supposed to do all these papers. And are you people insane? I just, you know, uh, and it, it just took me a while to get my bearings a little bit. Uh, and, uh, you know, after I started, after three weeks, uh, there, I, I got a job at a foundry, which was a little bit north of Moody, which was further away from home. We lived in the south suburbs, and so driving, you know, to Moody, uh, I, if I left the house by 6 a.m., I was okay because of Chicago traffic. If I left at 6:15, it was bad, it was it was bad news because that 15-minute interval there, believing at six. I could make it on time, leaving at 6.15. I would be late for an 8 o'clock class. Uh, you know, I mean, that's just how it was. I went to school from 8 o'clock to around noon, 
And then I ate my lunch in the car as I drove to the foundry. I worked there until 5 o'clock, and then I got on the Dan Ryan Expressway and drove in rush hour traffic on, uh, well, really started on the Eisenhower and did a Dan Ryan and, you know, into the Calumet Expressway. And uh, it, was, it was just a long, a long journey. Um, so when I got home, I would study until about 1 in the morning, and then I would go to bed and I'd get up and do it all over again the next day. It's only by the grace of God that that, you know, that I was even able to do that. Well, when Ginny saw how busy I was, she started mowing the lawn. She didn't ask me about it. She just went out there and did it. And I, and, and I had a lawnmower that I bought for 10 bucks. Hey, it was a good lawnmower. 10 bucks went a lot further than it does now. Um, but, you know, you had to pull start it and everything. And, and uh, you know, and she went out and she, you know, she just started mowing the lawn for me. Um, she also took over paying the bills. That was something I had always done. And I, I had always managed the finances. And she just took over doing that. Um, and, and, you know, then she typed all of my papers. Remember, there were no computers then. So she typed and retyped and sometimes retyped. All of my papers, you know, when we were getting to an eighth inch thick because of whiteout, it was time to retype the paper. Um, yeah, there's the older people laughing. The other younger ones said, whiteout, what, what are you? Um, whiteout was like white paint. You painted over your mistakes so you could type on them again. Um, yeah, but anyway, so she did all of that. She did everything she could to lighten my load and to take care of me. And over that first year, that first semester, my attitude moved from one of automatic pilots, simply appreciating the fact that she was there, uh, to one of gratitude as I realized her love for me. Uh, that brought our relationship really to an even deeper level of growth and enjoyment. And, you know, here we are 37 years later from that time. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, that's still where our relationship is. And my relationship with her affects every moment of every day. There's no questioning about it. Knowing that I'm loved by her affects everything I do. Now, many people have slipped into an automatic pilot mode in their marriage, and we are going to talk about marriage later in this series because in Colossians, Paul will get into relationship between husbands and wives. Uh, but my concern today is that too many people have slipped into an automatic pilot mode in our relationship to God. We have gotten to that place where we know he's there. And as long as he's there, you know, that, that's just okay with us. And we don't put as much, we don't, we don't put the effort into the relationship that we should. We don't even, I think we don't even realize how loved we are by God. And I hope that the verses that we look at today are going to help you see more of God's love for you and help you move into a deeper level of growth and enjoyment in your relationship with him. Let's pray and we're going to turn to our passage. Father, I thank you for the God that you are. You are the God that we need. There is no question about that. 
I pray that as we look into your word today, I thank you for it. I I pray, though, that it will give us a deeper appreciation of you and your love for us, that it will give us a a deeper understanding of your commitment to us, that it will help us to pull deeper and closer into a relationship with you, that it wouldn't just be things we hear, but it'll be, in many ways, a, a transforming time as we open ourselves up to you. So work by your spirit and through your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, starting with verse 13. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 1083. If you're using your tablet or something else, just do it and find it. Um, But Colossians chapter 1, starting with verse 13. We're picking up in the middle of a paragraph in most of the translations. That's where we left off last week, and that's where we're going to pick up today. Paul is continuing to help the Colossians. And through the providence of God, he is helping us to understand that we are complete in Christ. That's how God is. This isn't just a letter to the Colossians and it's something long ago and it doesn't apply to us. This is something that is very much applicable to us today. It's very much a part of of what God wants us to know and to hear. You know, to understand we're complete in Christ. And really, I want us to more than understand that we're complete in Christ. I want it to transform our lives and bring us to that, uh, to that position of, uh, of living more in the completeness that he brings. You see, the things we know should affect the way we live every moment of every day. It should affect us. It should make a difference in us, you know, striving for a more complete connection, uh, a more complete connection, you know, between what we know and how we live. Beginning with verse 13. It says, He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in Him. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. In everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now, we're about to look at four realities about who Jesus is, and you know, then you'll, I think you'll understand uh, more of His love for you, and that allows you to to live more completely in Him and more more complete, you know, by Him. And as you live more in the reality of who Jesus is, that is going to bring you more 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 joy, more love, more more peace in your life. It may not change your circumstances, but it's going to change you through those circumstances, and it will have an effect in your everyday living. Now, let me just tell you right up front, I don't think any of these things I'm telling you are new. They are not going to be new to you. You know, the realities that we're talking about, they're not going to be new to your understanding. I simply hope to help you understand them better and embrace them more fully. Now, the first one there is that Jesus is our Savior. Verses 13 and 14, he's our Savior. It says, he has rescued us. Rescue. You see, we were dead and he brought us to life. I was thinking that, well, you know, I've been thinking for a while, and this just kind of reinforced it a little more as I got to this, this message. I want to learn CPR. I don't know CPR. You know, I, I don't know CPR. I don't know how to do it. 
And I thought, I want to learn it. I don't want to be standing there when somebody else, you know, needs help and I, and I, and I can help them. I'm just going to stand there. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to be in that position. You see, I, I don't want to, somebody, you know, somebody needs CPR to, 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 to help that, you know, to, to, to bring life into their heart stops. I want to be able to do what I can to help their heart get going again, bring them back to life. This is what Christ has done for us. He's brought us to life. See, man's greatest problem is sin. We are dead in sin without Jesus. If we do not have a relationship with Christ, we are dead in sin. If we don't have that relationship, if we have refused, I'm not talking about having the knowledge of, of knowing you know, who he is. I'm talking about having that relationship, something that makes a difference in your life. It's not, it's not a coincidence that God illustrates um, the relationship of, of Christ and the church with marriage. And it's that relationship, a relationship that affects life, and, and this is what he's talking about here. And if you don't have that relationship with Christ, then you are still dead in sin without Jesus. Sin is simply independence from God in any area. It's where we decide that we know better than God. Well, you say, well, I don't do that. No, we do sometimes simply by our actions. We may not say it in our words, and some of us would never say it in our words, but by our actions, what we're doing is we're putting something else in place of God and in place of what God says and in place of his direction that we decide we're going to do it our way instead. That's independence from God. That is sin. We are sinners and in need of a Savior, and Jesus is our Savior. He's rescued us, it says, meaning that you know those who have come to faith in him, those are the ones who are rescued, those who have come to faith in him. The word rescue, you know, the, the rescued there, delivered in, in the 1984 NIV, it says, the newer NIV translation says rescued. It, it simply means to save from danger. To save from danger. Think about that. You know, he has rescued us. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness, that place of danger. You know, we cannot do this on our own. The reality of a rescue is that you're in danger and cannot get yourself away from that danger. If you can get yourself away from the danger, you don't need to be rescued. You just need to walk away. When you can't get yourself away from that, you need to be rescued. If you're drowning and a lifeguard jumps in to rescue you, it's because you're going to die if they don't, you see. Because you're in a place and in a position that you are in dire straits. You are in desperate trouble and somebody needs to come to rescue. If you, if when we rescue someone, you know, you take them from a place of danger, move them to a place of safety. He rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of the sun he loves. To take someone from a burning home and bring them into a burning car, you haven't saved them. You haven't rescued them. You, you've, just simply, you've just simply transferred them to a different place of danger, possibly one that was, you may have even increased the danger to them. As Savior, it says Jesus not only rescues us, but he transfers us into the kingdom of God. The word transferred there, it's a word that's used to describe the removal of the population from one country to another. We've, we've talked about this before. When they would conquer a people, they would, they would remove them. And so when Fort Wayne conquers New Haven, we remove all the people from New Haven and make a move to Cherubusco. Well, there's the, that's, but that's the picture for you. You see, that's the picture for you. Because the Canal Day people give a rip about Turtletown. But see, there's the, that's the picture, that's the word here, when he says that he's transferred us. 
He has, he has, he's removed us. He has removed us from that place. When we come into that relationship with Christ, he rescues us, transfers us, as it says here, from the kingdom of darkness, uh, that place without the light of Jesus, that kingdom of darkness, and moves us into the kingdom of God. We live in the kingdom of God now. Because under that kingdom of God means that we are living under his protection and guidance and according to his direction. When you live in a kingdom, you live under the authority and rule and direction of that, well, king, of that leader. There's the picture that he's removed us. From that kingdom of darkness, having to live under the influence of that darkness and put us into the place uh, uh, under the rule of God, under that protection and guidance that, that God gives. And that's where, he is, that's where he has moved us to. You know, he's moved us into his kingdom. We get to live in that kingdom now with all the benefits of the kingdom. Open access to the Father, the power of the Holy Spirit, the wisdom and the understanding of God's will. This is what he is part of what he has given to us. In him, you know, in a relationship with Jesus, it says that we have redemption. You know, redemption. That the price for our freedom has been paid. That's how he's rescued us because he has paid the price. He has paid the price for our freedom. Now, don't get the mistaken notion that he paid it to the devil. He didn't. He paid it. That God was the one who was offended. God the Father was the one who was offended. And he paid that price for us, and we have redemption, that price of our freedom. And it says that when we come into that relationship with Jesus as our Savior, notice it says we also have forgiveness. Forgiveness, that word means the canceling of debt. There's that redemption, that canceling of the debt. If you have forgiveness and you cancel the debt, that means if, if somebody forgives you a debt, that means you don't owe me anything anymore. You don't owe me anything. It's, you know, it's gone. You know, and there's picture after picture of this throughout Scripture. And Jesus, you know, shares, shares parables about, you know, the guy who was, who was forgiven this little bit, this great sum, excuse me, he's forgiven this great sum, and he went out and he found this guy who, who owed him a little bit, and he said, dude, this is a paraphrase, that's how you know, you know, dude, you, you, know, you owe me money. And he, and he says, he chokes him, I like the picture, you know, give me that money. And, uh, and it says, this guy, this guy didn't understand the depth of the forgiveness that he was given. Because you see, when we realize and when we understand the canceling of the debt, the forgiveness of our sins, it, 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 is, it, is, it changes us. It changes because the forgiveness of our sins, it's not simply deliverance from our past. It also sets us free for the present and the future. To live knowing we are forgiven. That God is holding it. It's not holding anything against us. And it affects the present life, and it affects our future. It opens the possibility of what it says, well, back in verse 10 that we looked at last week, you know, that so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. It opens a possibility for us to live a life worthy of the Lord. And forgiveness allows us to connect with God, to enjoy, you know, to enjoy his grace, to seek to do his will. If Jesus is your Savior, then step more into the reality of the completeness that comes from our Savior. In verses 15 and 17, it tells us that Jesus is our creator. He's our creator. 
Verse 15, it's a statement I don't want you to misunderstand. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The image to them, image meant, you know, it meant an exact representation and revelation. Not, not simply something that's close, not even something that's very similar. It's exact. He is God. And as God, as God, Jesus displays God's glory. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. John chapter 1, verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side. He, this one and only Son, he has revealed him. Just before he went to the cross, as Jesus is meeting with some of his disciples, and his disciples are a little confused, concerned, worried, upset, didn't quite get it, not, don't know what's going on exactly. Uh, you know, and Philip says, "Show it, you know, help, let us see God." And Jesus says to him, "Have I been among you all this time without you knowing me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father?'" When we talk about the triune God and the Trinity, and it's a difficult thing for us to understand, and Jesus is telling, part of it, telling us part of it here, you know, that he and the Father, they are one. You know, they, they, they're, they're one. It's not that he's the Father sometimes and, 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 and the Son another time and the Holy Spirit another time. No, they all three exist, and they all three are, are together as one God. When you look at Jesus, you look at God. In the context here of, of Colossians chapter 1 and, and, and verse 15, if you look at it, you'll see the word firstborn there. It doesn't mean the first one of many. Firstborn speaks of, of importance, of rank, uh, you know, of first rank. It implies a priority in time and a priority in status. It distinguishes Jesus from all the other created things as being here before them, as being supreme. The things we talked about as we, as we did the, the Nicene Creed together today. You know, it's a metaphor for the sovereignty of rank, not first in a series. It's in harmony with, with John chapter 1, the very first verse. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. When? In the beginning. Which beginning? Any beginning you want. What about it? He was already there. He existed in any beginning you want to choose. He already existed he is God. Look again there at verse 15 in, in Colossians 1. It says, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Over, not just within. Over all creation. Verse 16, it's pretty clear Jesus is the creator. It says, for everything was created by him. That's pretty clear. Everything, how many things? Everything was created by him. Well, what was? Well, everything was what? Created by him. How many things? Everything, everything was created by him. Where? Well, in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things, all things were created through him and for him. See, he's the creator. Creation was through him. It was through Jesus and it was for him. And as God, he is the source and the goal of creation. Right in line again with what we see in John. He says in, in verse 3, all things were created through him and apart from him, not a single thing, not one thing, not one, not nothing, not a thing. There isn't anything that was created 
that hasn't been created by him. By through him. The only way he could be creator is if he existed before creation happened. That's the only way that can happen. Jesus always existed. He created all things, it says, and he holds all things together. It's interesting that scientists, uh, you, you learn this, and I remember learning it in elementary school, and, uh, you know, stuff's made up of other stuff, atoms. And atoms are made up of, well, other stuff. You know, there's these... And so, and, and, and then what they tell you is, you know, there, there is no such thing as something being solid because you know, there's this space between all of these atoms. What holds them together? He's the creator and holds all things together. You see, this is, this is what the word tells us. That brings us down to verse 18. You know, he is also head of the body, the church. He's the beginning of the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. You see, Jesus is our head. He is our head. Now, this is more, this is more than simply a leader. Paul uses the illustration of a body here. One of the things a head does is a head brings life. You know, a head brings life to the body. Do you realize you can have any other one of your extremities cut off and still live? There's this guy, man, I can't remember his name, uh, Vukovic or something like that. He was an Australian pastor. He was born with no arms and no legs. Uh, you can look him up on YouTube. You know, uh, do it and and watch this and... You know, you're going to say, man, am I a baby, among other things. But uh, he's, he's still living. We have some soldiers, you know, that, that have gone off, you know, to defend our freedoms. And they've come back and they've lost one, two, three, and sometimes all their limbs. You see, you can lose limbs and you can still live. You can't, you can't cut off the head and still live. You can't do that. And it says that he is our head. You know, if, if the head's removed, life ceases. Jesus is the source of life for the church. He brings life. The head also gives direction. You know, it gives direction to the rest of the body. My arms move and my, my mouth speaks, you know, and my lungs breathe because they receive directions from my head. Some of the directions seem automatic to us, but... You know, a stroke, other malfunctions of my brain uh, or the communications, you know, from my brain and these things that we think of automatic, they stop working. When they, when they, uh, when they found those tumors in my head, you know, one of them is against, against my brain stem and uh, the doctor said, well, one of the doctors, I don't even remember which one, but I do remember what he said. He said, you don't want that to get in the brain stem. He said, because, you know, it gets into those nerves off the brain stem. So there's no telling what's going to happen. Because you cut off the head, you see, and then the rest of the body doesn't function properly. 
It doesn't function right. It, it doesn't go right. He said, you know, it, you know they, even though some of them seem automatic, when something happens to the head, you know, then, they, then they stop working. When your body doesn't respond to directions of your head, that's a problem. You know, that's a problem. There's, there's a breakdown somewhere. People who, people who are paralyzed, you know, who, who used to be able to move and stuff, become paralyzed and they, they think and they want to move their arms and stuff, but they can't, you see, because there's a breakdown somewhere. And that communication of the head is cut off, and because it's cut off, then, then there, there's a problem. When part of your body starts doing its own thing, you know, when it starts doing its own thing without direction from the head, you have a problem. Those are diseases. Jesus is the head of the church, his body. And as head, he has the responsibility and the right to direct the church as he sees fit. What does it say there? So that he might come to have first place in everything. In everything. We are part of his body and we have the responsibility to do as he directs, that he might have first place in everything, to do as he directs. We're, we're the parts that are supposed to do his bidding, not our own. You know, it, it's that he has first place and we do his bidding. We do, we do life according to what he says and according to how he directs, not our, doing our own thing. It says he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. He was the first to be resurrected to new life with a resurrection body. You see, he was resurrected. Others were resuscitated. He was resurrected to new life in his own bodies. Others were resuscitated to their life in their old bodies. And they died again. He is the first one. He is the first one that was resurrected and given his resurrection body. And it says that he is that, that those first fruits, the firstborn from among the dead. He's our standard. He's the one we to adhere to. He's the example we follow. The one we will one day be like in heaven. We have that privilege. We have that. Honor. He is our head. I really like. The way this section wraps up in verse 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. You see, Jesus is our, he's our savior, our creator, our head, and Jesus is our peace with God. He is our peace with God. It says all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. The sum total of all divine power, all divine attributes, everything that makes God, God, dwells in Jesus. Because Jesus is God. It says it dwells. Dwells, that's a word that means, you know, to, to, to be at home in permanently. You know, to be there, and this is, this is, you know, settled in a permanent home. And all that fullness dwells in him permanently. It's through Jesus that we're reconciled to God. Before we come to a relationship with, 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 with God, we are at war with him. We do our own thing, or we do somebody else's thing, but what we're doing is ignoring God. 
you may not feel like it, but he said, you know, we, we give someone else or something the place only God deserves, only God should have. Paul says it this way in Romans 8. For the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God. Hostile to God. Why? The mindset, you see. You say, well, they're good people, but where is the mindset? Where is the faith? Where is the trust? Where is the direction? Where is all of that coming from? The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit itself to God's law, for it is unable to do so. It is unable to do so because people are rejecting. Because when, God, when Jesus says, well, whoever comes to me, I meant in King James, no wise is going to cast out. There's no way. There's a paraphrase, dude. Uh, no way am I going to cast him out. Whoever comes to me. It's that they don't come to him, you see. And the mindset of the flesh there, it's hostile to God. Why? Because it does not submit itself to God. Because it rejects God. Because it says, I got this. I'm okay. I'm okay. I got this. I'm not such a bad person. I'm okay. It does not submit itself to God. And so we're at war with God. And through Jesus we are reconciled, it says there, you know, that it's in verse 20. Through him that we are reconciled, we are made right with God, reconciled, brought into that place of harmony with God. And that through him we are reconciled, and everything is reconciled through him. And that's the only way to be reconciled. Jesus is the only sacrifice, the only sacrifice that makes us at peace with God. Notice what it says, through his blood on the cross. Through his sacrifice. Through his sacrifice on the cross for us. He's our only hope. He is our only source of completeness. And because Jesus rules over all things, because he reconciles all things, then every aspect of life should come under his rule. Everything you do should be affected by your relationship with Christ. Your relationship with Christ should affect everything you do. No matter where you are, no matter what's going on, He is Savior, He's our Savior, our Creator, our Head, and our peace with God. He is all this and more. Why would you not want to grow in your relationship with Him and live for Him every moment of every day. What does it take for us to realize that? I don't know. I think sometimes it's different for different people. Maybe it's something that goes on in your life. Maybe it's sitting and listening to a sermon where somebody tells it to you. Maybe it's reading the Word of God where you come to see that He is. His love for us is so great. His commitment to us, that he is willing to be our Savior, our Creator, our Head, and our peace with God. Why wouldn't we want to come under that rule? Let's pray.